Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's go in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I want to talk this morning about normal Christians. How many of you feel like you're a normal Christian? Anybody? All right. Well, I feel like a normal Christian too. I know you think uh, pastors may feel a little bit differently, but um, there's a lot of ways in which I just I feel the same as I did before I became a pastor. Uh, now I just feel a sense of greater responsibility. But uh, as far as feeling different, I, I don't think that feelings really play into it. Uh, and what's normal uh, may not be what God intended. And I think God intends something uh, as a new kind of normal for us. And so I want to talk about that from Acts chapter 6. And uh, we're looking at the life of Stephen. So if you'll turn there with me, let's read a few verses on this. And uh, it's a great portion of Scripture that we won't be able to get to, but uh, you'll know most of it from your Bible reading. And if not, go back and take a look at chapter 7. But uh, let's look at chapter 6. I'm going to read this first portion here, and then we're going to talk about the circumstances that led to uh, Stephen moving into a place of prominence. Anybody know what Stephen is famous for being the first of? He's the first one to die for the cause of Christ, isn't he? And what's interesting about that is that he was not Peter, James, or John, nor was he one of the twelve. He was what we might think of as normal Christian, a normal Christian. Um, so let's, uh, let's take a look at this with God's help. And uh, Lord, we do ask for your help today. Let's look at verses 1 and following. We'll read through verse 15. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, uh, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's a lot of things that are happening here. Before we uh, take a closer look at Stephen, I, I want to mention some things that maybe um, prevents or causes some difficulty in our understanding this passage. There's, there's um, a couple things that the Holy Spirit is doing within the book of Acts. One of them is he's empowering different people for the growth of the church. And uh, we understand that he fills the lives of believers, and, and, and that's uh, par for the course. We understand that. But he's empowering specifically for the expansion of Christianity. Remember, Jesus said in Acts 1, he said, wait at Jerusalem till the Spirit uh, comes Upon you, when the Spirit comes on you, you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you'll have power to do it because the Spirit's there. So that's one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening is the Holy Spirit is overcoming the potential of destruction within the church from within. 
There are several places in the book of Acts and, and two really prominent ones where this could have taken a whole different direction, and the Holy Spirit came through on behalf of the church. You know, God not only wants to build his church by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to give us the unity of the Holy Spirit so that we can be one body. Do you understand that? That's, that's really powerful. Sometimes we miss that. And what's interesting is that Pentecostals or spirit-filled people who want the power of God often can be the meanest Christians and the most divisive because we feel like we have some kind of divine stamp to just say whatever we think is true, and we have to be nice about it. And so it can be divisive, and that's really been the case within the church for a long time. And sadly, that's not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Sadly, that's not displaying the unity of the Spirit that God intends. And so those two things are part of the book of Acts. Is One is expanding the church, and two, preserving the unity of the body of Christ. So this is one moment where that's the case. The case uh, that we're looking at today is as there were widows within the church, one of the things the church felt responsible to do is to take care of those widows who had no family to provide for their needs. Okay, So what they would do is they would provide meals and different things like that from the church's resources to do that. Well, I don't know why it was happening, but within the church at this point, it was mostly a Jewish church, but the Jewish church even was divided. I don't know if you've thought of that. There were those uh, Jews who lived outside of Palestine, outside of the promised land area. They lived in regions of the Greek Empire or, or the Roman Empire where they would have spoken Greek. And so they were called Hellenized Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews. Some of them have Greek-speaking names. In fact, every one of these guys that are mentioned here have Greek names. What that means is that when they chose these seven, they chose all of them from the Greek-speaking side of the church. And so the apostles said, we, what we need to have is unity. And so what happened was that those who were appointed to serve in this way took care to see that there was equal, equal distribution. Because do you know what could happen here? We could have had a massive split within the church that said, well, there's a Hebrew-speaking part of the church, and there's a Greek-speaking part of the church, and we don't go to church together because we can't get along. That's what could have happened. And church history would be different as a result of that. But instead, there was great wisdom that came from God. Let's choose seven men, not just seven men of any kind, because, you know, you can select a bunch of people to do a task, but if they don't have the right priorities, there's going to be trouble. If they don't have the right heart in it, there's going to be trouble. And so one of the things that they made as a stipulation was that they be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And I'm going to suggest to you that those two are connected. Okay, they have wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen is one of those that selected within this. And you'll notice that in verse 7, as a result of this, this is one of Luke is famous for giving us summary statements. A summary statement comes at the end of a certain section where events are described, and then it tells us, okay, what, what's like a health check of the church? How's it going? And it tells us that. And verse 7 says, after they appointed these seven the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. If you're studying the book of Acts, I would encourage you to go through, and, and, and the Gospel of Luke is like this too, look for summary statements. It'll tell us, and this is what happened. In fact, when we do our 242 group, um, our 242 name comes from Acts 242, which comes out of a section which is a summary statement of how it's going 
with the church, that they all met together in, in their houses, and they ate together, and the word of the Lord spread. Okay, so that's a, a summary statement that's taking place here. So I'd like you to, to notice that Stephen here is chosen as part of a group of men to meet a need. Uh, we would call him a deacon. Okay? A deacon comes from a Greek word which means uh, a servant, somebody who's going to serve. Sometimes we, we get far enough away from the original meanings of these words that we've, we've infused it with some kind of prominence and we've taken away the original understanding. And so when you hear the word deacon, what it means is a servant. Okay? They're, not, uh, they're not an owned servant in terms of being a slave. There's somebody who is a bond servant who has agreed to serve in a particular way to benefit the church. Okay? That's what the deacon is. And these guys are chosen as deacons, and Stephen was one of those. And we know that he was a Hellenistic Jew because his, his name, Stephen, is uh, a Greek name. And I don't know if you know this or not, but within Judaism, they had kind of this these tiers of... Um, prestige, kind of like we do in our society, where there's like levels of status. And if you want to be a high level status within the Jewish mind, typically, it would have been to be uh, a Hebrew speaking Jew from Judea. Okay. If you want to go down a level, it would be those who live in Galilee. You're lesser than in the eyes of most Jewish people. And so Jesus coming into Jerusalem and messing up the temple and speaking with a Galilean accent we don't always see it when we read the scripture, but it's there. There would have been a little bit of a prejudice against that. Okay, they, Those Galileans, they're radicals. We can't trust them. They don't have the right theology. They don't have the right approach to things. They're uncouth. They got a northern accent. Anybody have a northern accent? <laughs> they got a northern accent. And so uh, it bothered those people from down south. Okay, So then there's another step below that. And that's those Jews who are Jewish. They went to synagogue, but they didn't even speak Hebrew, many of them. And so they're lesser than in the eyes. Now, they're still better than Gentile dogs. <laughs> but you understand that there's this, there's this, these tears going on here. And so the fact that Stephen is chosen in this way shows that the church is bridging those kind of gaps. They're not letting the typical status of the world impose itself upon the way they do church. And neither should we. Come on, are you with me? Do you, you understand the implications of that? That we don't judge status and value based upon income, what place you are in society, what culture you come from, what color your skin is? We don't, we don't judge on those bases. We're all one in Christ. This is God's call for his church. So Stephen gets chosen. Notice that he's not an apostle. And notice, again, that he's chosen to serve a particular need. I remember hearing that uh, one of the things that Jack Hayford, who pastored Church on the Way for uh, many years, one of the things he used to require of those on staff at his church was, would you be willing to clean toilets? These are guys with Masters of Divinity degrees, guys who have moved up in ministry, and they're now qualified to be to serve on staff at his church. And he asked them, are you willing to clean toilets? Because that's the question. Do you have a servant's heart? My youth pastor, who he was here last summer, um, Darren Stroud, he, when he came to our church in Kansas to um, be the youth pastor, 
one of the questions the pastor asks is, will you be willing to move tables? Because <laughs> I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. 80% of ministry is moving things from place to place. <laughs> it is. We just moved, a bit, and I didn't do this, but thankfully our ministry team did this, moved a big stack of dirt back down into the ground. And uh, There's moving of tables and moving of furniture and moving things from here to there. And That sounds ridiculous, but I always thought if there were aliens and they were looking through their giant telescopes at what's going on, on Earth, they would find people putting little things into little boxes, moving through little boxes to the other place and taking them out and just imagine the bird's eye view of you going to the store and then returning home and not knowing the context for all that. Anyway, where was I with all of that? Serving, yes. <laughs> I got on a little rabbit trail. Just, that was my, my fascination with how that must look. But anyway, uh, Pastor Darren, he said, yeah, I'd be willing to move tables. And uh, our pastor said, okay. Well, that's good because the last couple guys that I interviewed, they told me they wouldn't do that. They'd gone to they'd gone to Bible school and they have their degree and they they're pastoring. They're ready to pastor, and ministry is not about moving tables. And so he said, "All right, next." <laughs> Those guys didn't get the job because they didn't have a servant's heart. This is what we see from Stephen: is that he is what we might call a normal Christian. I think normal is different than what we think it is. He's, he's a normal Christian who's willing to serve. And if you're willing to serve, you're right at the uh, place where God wants you to be. Remember the disciples in the upper room, they were arguing about something the night before Jesus was going to the cross, where he was going to play the largest servant role ever played in human history. And what were they arguing about? Who's greatest? Who's, who's the best disciple here? And I know Peter, this has Peter's fingerprints all over it, <laughs> right? I, and I, I might be wrong about that. I'll apologize when we get there. But um, you can see this argument taking place, and Jesus just casually goes and takes off his outer robe and puts on the cloth of a servant and washes feet. And he says, the way that you're arguing, that sounds like the way that the Gentile leaders work, but not so in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great, become servant. I can pour myself into a vessel like that. So we get these prestige problems. We get hung up on our own value and our own uh, prominence. And uh, we miss out on what God can do. And I think perhaps one of the reasons we, we may not see more of God pouring his power into us is that we've made it about us. And when that becomes the case, I don't think that God wants to plug you in to be used in powerful ways to promote yourself, right? Like, remember how I was talking last week about that terribly embarrassing thing that I did in college? I'm going to be the one to spark the revival. No, you're, you be used by God to do his thing. When you start to take yourself out of the equation, you become more and more usable by God. John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he can increase. Well, Stephen seems to be like this, um, and we see that with him, it's not about style, or, and, and this is some of the things that we add to who can be used by God in a powerful way, too, that we make it about style or volume or appearance or education or culture, and those things really have nothing to do with it. Sometimes we think we can, uh, it, that it takes a certain kind of person to do uh, a kind of ministry. Let's let's just take healing for an example. God uses people in gifts of healing. I think it still 
happens today. Do you have to look a certain way to do that? Do you have to wear a certain kind of suit? Do you have to wear a suit at all? I wear a suit. That's because I like to wear a suit. I like to dress up and say church is important. But God doesn't use me anymore than if I were wearing my grungies, right? It's not about that. It's not about uh, what particular style a person is in order to be used by God or where they come from. It's it's something else, and we'll, we'll want to come to that in just a moment. But he's, he's chosen to meet a need. He's empowered to change the world. Some things I'd like you to notice as we, we look on here. Verse 8, now Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen, uh, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia, which, by the way, is where Paul is from. Tarsus is in Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the, Lord, the Spirit had given him to speak. And when they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like we're having an echo of uh, what happened to Jesus. For we have, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now that's saying something. That's... It's not saying that they know what angels look like. They're saying something about the glory that shone from Stephen's face, that there was some glory in it, that when they looked upon Stephen, they saw uh, that spiritual glow that sometimes we see among people who are fellow believers. You know what I'm talking about? If you, if you know it, you know what I'm talking about. Like sometimes you'll pass people and you'll, you'll see how they respond to others. You'll see how they're living life. You'll see a certain glow about them, and you know they're a believer. And I'm not talking about something weird and mystical. I'm saying that you recognize something of glory, of God's glory on them. And there's, there's something like that here. And these people, though they don't, ha- they don't share that same glory, they perceive that about, about Stephen. Well, I'd like you to notice some things about Stephen here. And I'd like to ask the question, are these available to us? Because when I'm talking about normal Christians, what I want to encourage us with here is that Stephen is... Um, not the apostle. He's not a pastor per se. Uh, what he is, is he was, he's what we would call normal Christians. Because I think either we do this accidentally or we do it on purpose, is that sometimes we categorize people at different levels on a hierarchy, and then we say, God can use them to this degree, and God can only use us to this degree. And what I would like to encourage us with is to bust those categories out and to say, Lord, you can use me however you want to use me. Okay? And if we can do that, then that, that gives us all potential to be used in a great way by God. Okay? So, so notice these things. First of all, I'd like you to notice, and, and we're not going to read the sermon, but I'd like you to notice that Stephen has great passion for the things of God. He's passionate about the things of God. And what I would say about passion is that passion is not just being excited. We think that passion is just being excited. I think there is excitement in serving God. But I think passion sometimes displays itself in the long obedience in the same direction, in the constancy of doing what God's called us to do, more than in some kind of emotional 
uh, upheaval. Like there are people that get real emotional about the things of God, and then the next day they're down in the dumps. They're like on this weird roller coaster ride with God. That's not passion. Passion, a real passion for God is a passion that drives you day in and day out. That doesn't mean you're not going to have good and bad days. You will. But I'm saying, is there a constancy in the passion? I think I see that in Stephen, that he's the guy that he will continue to show up and serve. And he's ready to be excited about keeping the unity of the church just as much as he is about building the, the, the kingdom of God in terms of quantity. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like some people get real passionate about evangelism, but they're not so passionate about keeping the unity of the church. You you know what I mean? It needs to be both. It's not either or. And so he's passionate about this, and I can see that he's got great passion. I would encourage us that we, if we don't have a passion for the things of God, the problem might be our appetites. How many here would admit that your appetites are different now than when you were a kid? Anybody? Like, I remember the candy that I can eat as a kid. I can't even think of stomaching that now. Anybody remember the days of candy cigarettes? <laughs> Big League Chew. I, I still think, I've got to admit, I still think that's delicious. <laughs> but there's, how about the bubble gum that came with baseball cards? <laughs> Anybody? Like, I don't, that doesn't even really classify as gum, only in a lab somewhere. But our tastes have changed. And if you didn't grow up with that, probably you can think of a few things that you thought were disgusting as a kid, but your tastes over time have changed and they've matured. And so probably this is the common thing that I've witnessed is that commonly people want less and less sugar as they get older. They're like, okay, that was really good when I was a kid, but I can't have it be too rich like that all the time anymore. Your tastes have changed. And my tastes have changed over time. I, I remember, I don't know how this could even be the same person. Maybe somebody kidnapped me and swapped my body or something. But when I was a kid, I didn't care for steak. Can you believe that? <laughs> I love it. And I, the point that I'm trying to make here is that if we don't have a passion for the things of God, the problem might be our appetite. And do you know that appetites can be changed? They can. You can learn to like things you didn't like. You can adapt to those things. And so there's something to it. When my mom said to me, you're going to eat your vegetables. I don't like them. You're going to eat them anyway. And I did. And you know what? I like them now. I'm not, not running to the store raving over them, but I can tolerate it. And I know they're good for me. Before I paint myself into a corner here, let's keep moving. The point is <laughs> that passion for the things of God can be an acquired appetite. And maybe one of the reasons we don't have any room left over in our appetite for God is that we've used all our appetite up on entertainment. You know? We've entertained ourselves to where we we can't sit still to read our Bibles. Well, Stephen has a passion for the things of God. You can see that. You can see that in the way that he delivers his message, which we we can't take time to read today. He delivers that to the religious leaders. I'd like you to notice a second thing about him. He's he's great. He's got great passion for the things of God, but he also has great power in the Spirit of God. Okay. You'll you'll see this throughout. I'm going to talk more about this in just a moment. But he's he's got great power that comes through the Spirit of God. Stephen, in and of himself, is just about as powerful as you or me. Okay, remember a, a similar passage. This would be Elijah. Elijah was a man 
of like passions as we are, and yet he prayed and great things happened. Elijah is known as the charismatic prophet. And do you think it was because Elijah is something? Elijah is not something in and of himself. Elijah is only something because the Holy Spirit is working through him. And that's the same for you and me is that we can be used by God to do great things if God wants us to and we're available to him because the same spirit that lived in Stephen lives in us. The same spirit that lived in Peter and John lives in us. The spirit that empowered Christ lives in us. Are you with me? And so there's opportunity for God to use us in great ways. So he has great power in the spirit of God. And then I'd like you to notice this too. And you you won't see it here. You'll see it in chapter 7. He has great possession of the word of God. And by that I mean that he knows the word of God. There's something that has happened that I think um, probably comes from being a certain type of person more than it does from being balanced. And that's that people tend to be either word people or spirit people. Okay, Are you with me on that? That like there's people over here that are moving by the spirit. We don't have time to be locked down by the book. We're too busy doing the things of God, living on the extreme edge of whatever. Okay, And then there are people over locked into the book and say, we got no room for the spirit of God and flexibility. And can I suggest to you that those are not mutually exclusive? The best people in the Bible, the best people are the people who know the word and have the spirit. It's word and spirit that are working together. And so you see that though he's got the power of the Holy Spirit, it says several times of him that he's full of the spirit. That while he has that, the spirit working in him and he's doing certain kinds of miracles, he is, I would call him, apart from G- after Jesus, I would call him the second biblical theologian. And I don't know if you know the difference, but systematic theologians, they take ideas or concepts like the omnipotence of God and they trace that through Scripture. But biblical theologians, they follow a chain all the way through and they just say, what is the Bible teaching us here and here and here and here? Okay, rather than developing it by topic, they develop it by how does the Bible teach this if we go step by step through it. And I think Stephen's the first biblical theologian because what he does is he begins to lay out what has happened in Scripture and how have people responded to God through it. And he does that in chapter 7. He's a, he's, a, he's a man who knows the Word. If you want to be powerful in God, I would suggest to you have an increasing knowledge of the Word of God. Be a student of the Word. Not, not just verse a day keeps the devil away. More than that, have a deep, deepening understanding of God's Word and seek passionately God's Holy Spirit. When those two things come together, tremendous things can take place. Well, I'm not convinced that miraculous gifts have passed away. And uh, you can see from uh, Stephen's life, he's not an apostle, and yet he performed miraculous signs and wonders. Notice what it says in verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed uh, great sign, great wonders and signs among the people. And so then opposition arose. And there's several things that we can unpack here. But one thing that I think is really important to mention here is that he was a man full of God's grace and power, that the, the power and the grace of God came through him. He was available to God. He was full of God's grace and power. And grace here is a similar word to the word that we get charisma from. 
right? Charisma is the miraculous workings that God does through his people. And notice that grace is something that's granted. It's like a gift. And so when we talk about God's uh, grace and power, one thing that we need to understand is that none of us are worthy of him using us in powerful ways like that. None of us gets that because we've achieved a certain level in the things of God. Like we're we're so mighty and powerful. The Corinthian church were, were known as babes in Christ. And yet, Paul says of them that you neglect almost none of the spiritual gifts. You have all of them. You're rich in spiritual gifts. How can that be? How can a person be immature and yet at the same time have the miraculous gifts working in their lives? The only answer to that, in my understanding, is that those things are gifts that are given through those individuals regardless of their maturity level. Are you with me? So notice, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, fruit grows. That takes time. But if you'll notice, the gifts of the Spirit, they're given at any moment. Sometimes people who are used in the gifts of the Spirit, like Peter, later, they make some grievous mistakes. Like, you remember how we talked about the problem here in chapter 6? This reemerges a little bit later when the Gentiles come into the church in mass. Because Peter goes up to Antioch, and he gets within the church, and he finds out that the Greeks, the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles are eating at different tables. And what does he do? And the, and the Jews are eating a kosher meal, and the Gentiles are eating non-kosher. They're both Christians. And Peter says, well, I'm going to go sit with the Jewish guys. So he does. So he goes and sits with them. And Paul says in Galatians 2, when I came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. I got in his face in front of everybody and said, you're wrong, buddy. And he rebuked him in front of everybody. Because what Peter was practically doing was creating a doctrinal divide between Jew and Gentile. And he was undoing the work of Christ. This is Peter who's preached on Pentecost that people from all nations will come in. And he had a hard time with it, didn't he? Acts 10. Like, take and eat. I can't eat. So here's what I'm trying to say here is being full of the Spirit or being used in the gifts of God does not guarantee maturity. Now, I want to flip that a little bit on the other side of it. What that means for you and me is that you don't have to reach a certain level of maturity before God can use you. That's a benefit. But we ought to strive for maturity. You understand? that It doesn't take being mature to be used in power gifts that God gives but we ought to strive to be mature because that's a great responsibility. So we look and we see that God continues to use people. Notice that through these grace, uh, the grace and power, he performed great wonders and signs. This, uh, this word performed here in the Greek is, in the, is a verb in the imperfect, which means that it has a beginning in the past, but it doesn't stop. And so what this means is that he not only performed a miracle, but these things kept happening in his life. Where he would go, where he would minister, wonders and signs kept happening. Let me ask you something. Can God use you in a a way like that? I think so. I think some of it has to do with our desire and our willingness. And I think another part of it has to do with God's sovereignty. Because not everybody is used in the exact same way. Okay, do you understand what I mean by that? The Bible says of John the Baptist that he never performed a sign. Did you know that? He never performed a miracle. 
But we have several other people who did. And what I'm asking for us today is to remove the obstacle of, I have to be an apostle, I have to be a pastor, I have to be a missionary to do the miraculous. Remove that obstacle. The other thing is to be open to God. God, will you use me in these particular ways? And the answer to that will come with whether we're open to being full of the Holy Spirit. I'd like you to notice it says of Stephen several times that he was full of the Spirit. And this is a big issue or a big concern or a big focus in the book of Acts. Full of the uh, Holy Spirit usually is accompanied by some attribute or effect. Have you noticed that? So think about this. Uh, and I think this is important because it shows the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these resources and powers the action. You'll notice uh, full of the Holy Spirit sometimes has visible gifts and audible gifts. In chapter 2 of Acts, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in other tongues. This is talking about the disciples. So filled with the Spirit and there was an effect that went along with it. Okay, Filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Chapter 4, verse 8, it says of Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he preached to the religious leaders. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he preached to the religious leaders. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's an effect. He preached to the religious leaders by way of the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4, 31, after they came back from preaching, uh, they their bravery was running a little bit low after that. And they, they remembered Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And they're like, Lord, you hear their threats. Come and fill us again. These are the same guys that were filled at Pentecost. They needed to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. If you were filled with the Holy Spirit in 76, and that's it, it's time for a new one. Not a new spirit, same spirit, new filling. Be filled again with the Holy Spirit. Same guys in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. In, in chapter 6, verse 3, it talks about an attribute that the, the guys they were looking for to be deacons were full of the Spirit and wisdom which comes by the Spirit, Acts, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 11, uh, 2 and following fills that out if you're interested. Um, and then chapter 6, verse 5, it talks of Stephen that he was full of the Spirit and faith and then full of grace and power here to do miraculous things that he performed in chapter 6, verse 8. And then uh, it says that Stephen was full of the Spirit and he saw a vision of Jesus. Sometimes we wonder, when persecution comes, will we be able to stand up under it? What I, th I think is that God gives each person grace in the moment of need. Like, Stephen, like, you going to worry about your persecutors if you're looking up into an open heaven and seeing Jesus welcoming you? you? You know what I mean? It doesn't happen like that for everybody, but it seems to me that God gives the grace that's necessary to endure. Chapter 11, verse 24, tells us that Barnabas was a man full of the Spirit and of faith. In chapter 13, verse 9, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he rebuked Elymas. I was going to say curse, but I don't want you to think he, he said bad words. What he did was he, he set the Spirit of God against Elymas, the sorcerer. And because he was full of the Holy Spirit, Paul, not Elymas. Elymas was full of another kind of spirit, apparently. Chapter 13, verse 52 he was filled with joy. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the thing that I would encourage you to see, and this is linked in other places as well, Ephesians 5, is that filled with the Spirit has an attribute or a, an effect attached to it. 
So meaning when the Spirit is filling us, there's a certain way we respond. That's what I want to invite us all to today. Be full of the Holy Spirit. If we're living like on the the dying edge of our Christian walk, that's not where God wants us to live. He wants us to be full of Him. You know, I remember, I don't remember what it was, but they used to have this slogan, Brill Cream, I think. Anybody know what that was? What was the slogan with that? A little dabble, do you? It just takes a little bit. That's not how it works with the Holy Spirit. We, we need Him. We need Him to fill us. Ephesians chapter 5, in fact, commands us. This is not even in the, if you have a problem with taking instruction from narrative, the stories like what we're doing this morning, then I would encourage you to look at Ephesians 5 where it commands us to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. He's writing to the Ephesians. And the Ephesians thought that if they got drunk with wine, not the Ephesian Christians, but the Ephesian culture, then they would be filled with the spirit of Dionysus. And, of course, Dionysus was a fickle god that would cause people to sometimes cry and be sad, just like being drunk does, or get happy and and then pass out or do outrageous things or throw tantrums or whatever. They were being filled with the spirit of Dionysus. Paul says, no, don't be filled with that spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God, and there are effects to that. Speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, and submitting to one another. I don't know if you knew this, but in the Greek, that part is connected to being filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another. What? We're cavalier and mavericks out here with the Holy Spirit. Not in the New Testament. We work together. This is part of the unity thing. So how, how should we be full of the Holy Spirit? Let me suggest four things that will help us to open ourselves up to be full of the Spirit of God. And if, if this bothers you, because I, I know that we might think in terms of that being full of the Spirit is all God's doing. You can't be full of the Holy Spirit unless God does something. Are you with me? Okay. But if there's a command to do something, then that suggests to me that we have to do something too. Right? The command implies that you participate in this. Why? Otherwise, why command? Just say, this is what the Lord's going to do. Just promise. No, he commands. What do we do in terms of that? Well, I think, first of all, we need to seek God with all of our heart. We want, we want more of you, Lord. Not just, not just your gifts. We want you. We want you. Seek God's gifts, or seek God with all of your heart. We'll come to the gifts in a moment. Seek God uh, with all of your heart. To trust God with all of your heart. It goes along with it, but like one of the problems that sometimes we have for being used in the supernatural gifts of God is that we don't trust that God can use us or that he wants to use us, or if he does use us, he's going to make us look foolish. If I, if I speak in tongues, if he wants me to speak in tongues and prompts me to do that, how think about how foolish I'm going to look. Do you trust that God is going to do what's best with your life if you'll lean into him with everything? Or do you think he's just trying to make a fool out of you? Sometimes we have to be foolish for God. But it's not the point. The point is we don't just, we're not foolish for fool, uh, foolishness sake. We're foolish 
for the advance of the kingdom in some way. Sometimes it requires that, but trust God with all of your heart and say, Lord, if you want me to do this, if you want me to pray for somebody, if you want me to give in a particular way and make myself available for you to use me, then I, I trust you with that. And that, that leads to the third thing is obeying God with all of your heart. Seeking, trusting, obeying God with all of your heart and being willing to say, Lord, I, I'm not going to pause in this because I think sometimes the miraculous gift, the way that it talks about miraculous gifts in the New Testament, it uses a Greek word, uh, which is the same word for lightning. Okay, phanerosis. Think of this. Lightning comes, and it's gone like that. Comes for a moment, it's gone. Okay, The manifestation of God's Spirit, His Spirit remains, but that manifestation where God uses us may come for a particular moment. It's just for that moment. If we don't act and respond obediently, we miss the opportunity. You with me? So, what if it is praying? What if God prompts your heart and says, go pray for that person? I'm about ready to do something big in their life. And we, like, sit and argue with God like sometimes we do. Uh, what if nothing happens, Lord? Is this really you? Uh, are they going to hate me? You know the thing that goes through your mind. And we step back and we, are, we reason ourselves out of it and we miss the opportunity. And maybe God was going to do a miracle because you just simply surrendered and said, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I'll leave the, the outcome in your hands. I'm not going to try to determine this. I can't heal them. I can't meet their need. But I can pray and give God an opportunity to do something big. Right? And that's, I think, obeying as part of the formula is that you never feel powerful when you first step up. You feel, if you feel power at all, it's when you step in and start obeying. Then that meets you. This has been my experience week in and week out for over 25 years. That when I step into the place and start acting obediently, God comes and he meets the need in that moment. And usually not before. Like he doesn't give us a brave feeling before all the time. He works in our lives when we step out in faith and obey him. And then, fourth thing, you're going to, I think you might question this. So I just want to prepare you for it. We need to pursue God's gifts with all of our heart. We shouldn't, and I've heard this, we shouldn't pursue his gifts. We should pursue God. Yeah, that's why I put that first. Pursue God. But should we pursue his gifts? Yes. 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. If we're not earnestly desiring spiritual gifts, we're not following the Bible as thoroughly as we thought. Because the Bible says we ought to pursue spiritual gifts. In fact, pursue is the Greek word that stands behind that is run after them. Now, let me, posh, let me caution us here. We're not running around chasing miracles. You, you understand the difference? Like We don't need to have the spectacular. We're not talking about that we have this, we have this craving that is almost like a habit that we always have to be in the middle of the spectacular. Our Christian life is falling apart. No. I'm talking about the kind of thing that says, God, I want to see your glory come and you to work in this situation. So I, I want you to use me. If nobody else will, I want you to use me. 
in spiritual gifts. I make myself available to you, not because not because I'm anything special, but because I know you want to use every normal Christian. Okay? We're all normal until you get to know us, right? That's what I'm talking about. All of us, we're normal Christians, and God wants to use normal Christians, so we should pursue God's gifts with all of our heart. I don't mean that just one gift. I want to caution us against that. Don't just say, pick one and go like, ooh, that one sounds really good. I'd like that one. Words of knowledge. I want to know what other people are thinking. And that's not really how that gift, that's not really, that's, that's right. That's not really how that gift works. Thank God. That's not how that gift works. Words of knowledge is when God gives us a piece of his infinite knowledge for a particular need at a particular moment. That's a word of knowledge. Like, we just know something that's going to meet a need in some way for that moment. It's the lightning that flashes. He doesn't open up the encyclopedias of heaven and dump them in. He gives us a piece, just a little piece, like a flash of lightning that comes for that particular moment. And so we pursue God's gifts with all of our heart. Now, you can't fill yourself. Only God can do that. But we can get our hearts ready, and we can eagerly desire this. In Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 11 through 13, he makes the comparison here, Jesus does, of fathers and the heavenly father. And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give, Matthew says, good gifts to those who ask? And Luke, who is the charismatic New Testament uh, gospel writer, says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Did you know that? How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? Read it, Luke 11, 11 through 13. Which of you as fathers, if your son asks for fish, will he give him a snake instead? And if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? And if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, this is, this is for normal Christians like you and me. Okay, we're not, we don't have some large television show. We don't, uh, we don't have a massive following. We have a, a normal, everyday environment that we live in. Are you with me? Does God want to use you in that environment? And is there potential for a miraculous God who, who is supernatural to do supernatural things in our ordinary lives? I think so. And I would want to give him the opportunity. And so what I would want to do is say, Lord, if you want to use me in this way, if you'll tell me, I'll just be obedient. I'm not going to force some kind of outcome. I'm not going to embellish. I'm just going to go and do what you asked me to do. And if you want to do the miraculous, I'd love to see it. But I leave that in your hands and we commit that to the Lord. If God can use Stephen... And Stephen is an example for us. Carl Henry in uh, his book, God of the Ages, says, The hostile powers sought to stamp out Christianity from the top down, taking for granted that only leaders counted. What the opposition overlooked is that the martyr spirit of Stephen represented not the heartbeat of professional leadership, but the devout devotion of convinced laity. And what he means by that is that Christianity is a grassroots movement. You can't stamp out the leadership and think you're going to get rid of the system. Are you with me? Because there are believers that take this seriously all over the world. 
And you can't stamp it out from the top down because what will happen is somebody new will rise up and take that place and lead because God is doing something. He's doing something in hearts, in individual hearts around the world. We can be involved in ministry. And, and by the way, ministry doesn't come from titles. Do you know that? You don't have to have a title. You don't have to be called deacon or elder or pastor or missionary or apostle. I'm not super keen on apostle anyway. But you don't have to have those particular designations to be used by God. Stephen is a deacon, but already prior to that, before they ever laid their hands on him, he was already full of the spirit and wisdom. He was already doing great things for God. Your ministry will make a place for you. And I think of titles like this, like if you're a mom, are you a good mom because you have the title mom? Your, your being a good mom doesn't come from the title. If your kids didn't ever call you mom ever again, you would still be mother to them. You would still have that heart of a mom for them. I think that's really important. That, uh, and, and you know that because before they ever said the word mom, he were going to care for them and love them. And it's, it's, I think there's a similar thing in following God and serving him and ministering for him, that ministry doesn't proceed from titles. Ministry, uh, titles can remind us of our responsibilities. Like maybe a, a time being mom, you're like, or dad, right? Well, I should do this because I am dad after all, and it helps you remember your responsibilities. But being that, having that kind of relationship to your children doesn't come from a title. And in a similar way, doing ministry doesn't come from a title. Title may remind us of our responsibility, like I might think, I'm the pastor, I, I need to do this particular thing. But my ministry heart started long before that. You, you, do, you hear what I'm saying in this? Is that it doesn't come from, if you're waiting for a title or a position to do ministry, wait no more. You have the Spirit of God. Ministry ought to happen relationally with people that you know. So this is a, a grassroots kind of thing. And I'm not saying that he will make it happen exactly like Stephen, but what Stephen does, he breaks the mold for us in thinking that miraculous ministry or any kind of spirit-empowered ministry is professional for professional clergy only. Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about let's make ourselves available to God. And forget about pedigree. Uh, that doesn't matter either. I mean, pedigree can only give us maybe a leg up in one sense. If you, you grew up in a ministry family, you may have more insight into this particular thing. But the, here's the interesting thing about pedigree. Stephen doesn't have the pedigree. You know what I mean by that? Like, he was born into a certain family. Everybody who had pedigree was standing, almost everyone was standing opposed to the gospel. Right? I mean, even Paul to a certain extent. And then finally he's like, whatever was to my gain, I count as loss, even my pedigree. All that. Look, Philippians chapter 3, look at it. He says, Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, surpassing all of my countrymen in terms of passion for the faith, all of that, I count it loss compared to knowing Christ. So I would encourage us today to be open. This is, this is really where this message is going. 
Could I challenge you to imagine new horizons in our Christian walk? Not to just be, we're not just coming to church to to get fed so that we can maybe be sustained for the week. And I, I like what our youth leaders are telling our youth group. You don't just eat one meal on Sunday and one on Wednesday. You gotta you gotta eat every day. You need to read your Bible every day. We need to be praying every day. We need to be asking the Lord when we wake up in the morning, how can you use my life to your glory? How can I what 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 can I do to respond to you in a right way? Lord, here's my life. I give it to you. Use it for your glory. And if you want to do the miraculous through me, there's no verse in the Bible that says the miracles had to stop with the apostles. There's not one. Okay? If you hear that, I would challenge that with Scripture and say, show me. There's not one. They're still there. How does God want to use you? Well, that's up to him, but are you available? Maybe we've not seen God use us because we've not been available. We've not thought of new horizons. Stand with me, if you would, as I share these closing things here. First of all, I think we need to seek to know God more. Because your love for the world, your love for God's word, is going to grow in relationship to your love to God. Somebody asked a Bible scholar, um, and I can't remember his name, but he was famous in the last generation. I'm sure he's late by now, but... um, he, this student went into his professor's uh, office, and, and while they were conversing, he quoted, the professor quoted like 30 verses from the Bible. And he said, how do, how do you do that? He said, if you fall in love with Jesus, you'll fall in love with his word. And if you've got something between you and Jesus right now, I wouldn't be surprised if you have any hunger at all for God's word. Do you know what I mean by that? There wouldn't be much hunger for the Word of God unless you love God. You'd probably be a little bit repelled by it because the Spirit's going to get you if you get into His Word. (laughs) You know what I mean? In a good way. Two, I think we need to seek to be empowered by God because we need God's power today more than ever. We live in a, um, a secular culture that has dismissed miracles. Sometimes we think, well, we don't need those miracles anymore because we've got all this technology. We still need miracles, maybe more than ever, to demonstrate that God is not, cannot be locked in by a secular scientific mindset that says this only can happen. No, we have a God of impossibilities, and he wants to reach his arm through our lives to this fallen world. Third, let's seek to be serving God and take the position of a servant so that you're available when God needs you. There's a dear old lady who has now gone home to be with the Lord. Her name was Sister Haven. She was a pastor for many years. She got really sick and I think had the flu. That's <laughs> in the days before COVID where you could actually be sick in public, right? She was home and God said, I need you to go to the store. And she said, I don't feel like going to the store right now. But he prompted her heart. And so she got herself cleaned up and got ready. Went to the store with an aching body. Felt like she should be home in bed. She must have been older at this point because I think her husband was already passed. She went to the store not knowing exactly what even she needed to get there. You ever done that? (laughs) What am I even doing here? She walked past this aisle. There was a man that was crying. So she felt like that's why God called her there. She went over and talked to him. His name was Jeff. 
talked to her, and she, she said, what's wrong? And he started to pour out his life. And right there in the aisle, she led him to Jesus in a grocery store. Power of God to, to hear God's voice and to go and to carry the unction of the Holy Spirit. Same as Jeff. I didn't know this story. I went to Bible college, and in, we had this class called Fundamentals of Music and Worship. We called it Fundies. It was not fun. Dean might have liked it, but I did not think it was very fun because I'm not very musical. Guess who was in that class? I didn't even know this story. Jeff Buffalo. Jeff Buffalo. I think he's from the Miami Indian tribe. That day he gave his life to Jesus and then felt a call to ministry, became a hospital chaplain. Yeah. Somebody heard the voice, put themselves aside went and extended the miraculous arm of God into somebody's life. They were touched for eternity. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's so beautiful and it can be so common that we wouldn't even be surprised by it. But we need to offer ourselves to the Lord to be used now. And it's not just because she was a pastor. God can use anybody to do that. Normal people, normal people like you and me. Amen. Thanks for your grace's attention. I went longer than I wanted to. Here's how I think we ought to respond today is we need to seek we need to seek more of God and make ourselves available to him. Maybe God spoke to you about one particular area, and I would like to invite you to respond. You can do that at your seat, or you can come and make an altar out of these steps. Would you be willing to say, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to live the normal Christian life. I want it to be exceptional in you however you desire for that to be. There's going to be a lot of mundane days, no doubt about it. You're going to be moving tables, going to the grocery store, putting things in your car. But you're going to see the wonder and the miracles of God if you'll make yourself available to it. So I'm inviting you to that today, to just say, here's me, God. I want I want to be included in the miraculous life that you have in this world. Amen. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 12, the works that I do, you'll do also, and greater works than these because I go to the Father, which means that not that we can do greater in significance than what Jesus has done. I think what he's meaning is that as he goes to the Father, the Spirit's going to come down and his work is going to be multiplied among his followers and great things are going to happen because of the Holy Spirit living in them. And he lives in you. The Spirit who has all the gifts lives in you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.